Section 1 of The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brandon B. The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln by Orville J. Victor. Chapter 1. His Early History and Education Abraham Lincoln, the pioneer boy, the flat boatman, the rail splitter, the self-educated lawyer, the congressman, and the president of the United States, was born on the 12th day of February, 1809, in an obscure cabin in that portion of Hardin County, Kentucky, which has since been formed into the county of LaRue. Like that of Jackson, Clay, Webster, and others whose illustrious names are bright upon the scroll of our nation's history, his early life was cast in the unfavoring crucible of poverty and toil, a crucible from which we come forth dross or gold, as the case may be. Thomas Lincoln, his father, and Abraham, his grandfather, were native to the soil of Rockingham County, Virginia, their ancestors having emigrated thither from Berks County, Pennsylvania. Further back than this, we find it difficult to trace his genealogy. It was a Quaker family, originally, but, as time drew on, the characteristic habits of that sect seem to have been forsaken by the Lincolns. Our hero's grandsire, Abraham, had four brothers, Isaac, Jacob, John, and Thomas. Isaac emigrated to a point near the junction of Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee, where his descendants are now living. The descendants of Jacob and John are still living in Virginia, as far as known. Thomas came to the wilds of Kentucky and, subsequently, died in that state, whence his descendants migrated still further west to Missouri. In the year 1780, the remaining brother, Abraham, removed to Kentucky with his family and took possession of a small tract of land in the forest solitude, erecting a log cabin wherein to shelter his household gods. Armed with the pioneer's watchword, hope and hard work, he here set himself resolutely to the project of hewing for himself a comfortable and permanent home out of the game-peopled, Indian-haunted wilderness. But his occupation was accompanied by considerable personal peril. His cabin, which was isolated from its neighbors by several miles, was a dangerous dwelling in a region infested by roving savages, whose blind instinct of revenge was perpetually searching for a pale-faced victim, and it searched only four years before this hardy pioneer was numbered with the slain. At the end of that period, while at work on some timber, about four miles from his home, he was shot dead by a bullet of a sulking savage, and his scalped remains were found the next morning by his afflicted family. 
Upon sustaining this heavy loss, the widow was left alone in the inhospitable wilderness with her three sons and two daughters. Poverty compelled a family separation, and all the children but Thomas bade a farewell to their sorrowing mother to seek other homes in other parts. The second son migrated to Indiana, and the rest to other portions of Kentucky. The elder of the brothers, Mordecai, lived long in Kentucky, and afterward removed to Hancock County, Illinois, but soon after died there. Several of his descendants reside in that location at this present date, 1864. Mary, the eldest sister, was married to Ralph Croom, and some of her descendants were to be found in Brackenridge County, Kentucky, in 1864. Nancy, the second sister, was married to William Brumfield, but there is nothing further known of her family, though they are supposed to have remained in Kentucky. Thomas, the younger son, and the father of our chief magistrate, owing to his mother's strained circumstances, was, from early childhood, a wandering farm boy, and grew up without education. The extent of his knowledge of penmanship was the mastery of his own signature. When still a boy, he passed a year, as a hired hand, with his uncle Isaac, who had a farm on the Watoga branch of the Holston River. He was in his 28th year when, upon his final return to Kentucky, he married Nancy Hanks, the mother of our subject, in the year 1806. The Old Dominion was also her native state, and some relatives of hers were, in 1864, residing in Illinois in the counties of Coles, Macon, and Adams, as well as in Iowa. Thomas Lincoln and his wife were plain people, members of the Baptist Church, and about equally uneducated. The latter could read, but not write, while her husband, as we have before stated, could manage his own name as a penman, but, it is said, in a style more perplexing than readable. Nevertheless, he could fully appreciate the value of a better education than he himself possessed, and was not devoid of that truly democratic reverence which can bow before superior mental attainments in others. He was besides an industrious, cheerful, kind-hearted man. His wife was a woman of excellent judgment, sound sense, and proverbial piety, and, withal, an excellent helpmeet for a backwoodsman of Thomas Lincoln's stamp, and a mother whose piety and affection must have been of inestimable value in the shaping and directing of her children's destinies. Says the poet, There's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them as we will. But how much that divinity is controlled and directed by the heart and hand of the mother, the lives of all men remind us. In their keeping rests the destiny of their children, to an almost exact degree. In Europe, 
in our own country in many cases, a similar lowliness in progenitors might be disguised, or alluded to with the haste of an unworthy shame. But the compiler of this record of a truly noble life dwells upon the rude but honest characteristics of the parents of his now most illustrious subject with pride, and with a democratic fervor in his pride. A brimming health to our low-born, high-risen president, and a God-rest to the bones of those whose simple names are emblazoned on the brightness of his own. Three children were the fruit of this union. A daughter, a son who died in infancy, and Abraham. The sister, who was older than Abraham, attained the years of womanhood and married, but she long since died without issue, so that the subject of this biography has now, in 1864, neither brother nor sister. Together with his sister, Abraham was first sent to school when he was seven years of age, to a man by the name of Hazel, who came to reside in the neighborhood of his father's cabin. The capacities of this pedagogue seem to have been almost as limited as those of the hedge schoolmaster of Ireland, but he could read and write, which enabled him to assist the young ideas of the backwoods to take root at least. Very probably, the school cabin of Caleb Hazel appeared like a temple of learning to the little Abraham when he first entered its portals, with hope and aspiration in his breast and brain, and a dog-eared copy of Dilworth's spelling book under his arm. But this first bylane to the broad highway to learning was relinquished by the young aspirant almost as soon as begun. Owing to his father's removal, shortly afterward, to another state. He had been residing on Knob Creek, on the road from Beardstown, Kentucky, to Nashville, Tennessee, a few miles southwest of Atherton Ferry, on the Rolling Fork. Thomas Lincoln seems to have been impelled to this removal by an inherent disgust for the institution of slavery, with which he had become early imbued, although himself a Southron by birth and residence. Footnote. Most probably this removal was, also, partially influenced by the difficulty in land titles in Kentucky. End of footnote. An early acquaintance with the evil which was wrought upon his own class by the effects of the peculiar institution combined with an independence of spirit which revolted at the consequent degradation which, as a poor white, he must undergo, if he remained in the midst of the helot's curse, continually prompted him northward, until, at length, in the autumn of 1816, finding a purchaser for his farm, he migrated from the then slave-teeming region of Kentucky to rude but free Indiana, accompanied by his wife and son, the latter then approaching the threshold of his ninth year. The place whereon the home-seeking pioneer proposed to strive anew was in Spencer County, Indiana. The price which he received for his Kentucky farm was ten barrels of whiskey, forty gallons each, 
valued at $280, besides $20 in money. Such transactions in the disposal of real estate were quite common at that period. As soon as the sale was effected, the father determined to proceed alone to Indiana in the quest of the new home to which he was finally to remove his family. Having had some experience as a carpenter, he set to work. With such slight assistance as could be afforded by little Abe, and built a flatboat, wherewith to transport his household goods to the northern bank of the Ohio River. The flatboat was soon finished and launched on the current of the rolling fork. Then loading it with his goods and tools and his ten barrels of whiskey, the pioneer bade adieu to little Abe, who stood watching him from the bank and was soon on his way down the stream. For quite a distance, the voyage was accomplished with success. But after entering the broader current of the Ohio, an unlucky mishap served to dissipate the self-congratulation of the adventurous voyageur. A sudden gust of wind, or the sidelong punch of a sunken snag, caused the craft to careen. When the whiskey rolled from its position to the side depressed, and the next instant there was a capsize. Everything went underwater, and the captain with it, but he clung to the structure of boards and logs and shouted for assistance. His cry fortunately attracted the attention of some men at work on the bank of the stream. A skiff put off for the wreck, and, in a few moments, released the skipper from his uncomfortable dilemma. The flatboat was also righted and secured, and as much of the cargo was saved as possible. But except for a few carpenter's tools, axes, and some other articles, with three barrels of whiskey, everything was lost. Having reloaded his boat with the recovered property, Mr. Lincoln heartily thanked the generous men for their timely assistance and once more proceeded on his voyage. From the information he had received, he determined to make his final landing at a place called Thompson's Ferry, which was the nearest point on the river to the location of his contemplated home. He arrived at Thompson's Ferry without further mishap. Here he found a settler named Posey, whom he hired to guide and convey him 18 miles into Spencer County giving his boat in payment for the services received. The district in which he proposed to locate his new home was very sparsely settled, and the approach to it difficult in the extreme. For the last few miles, they were compelled to hew their way through the unbroken forest to make a road by which to proceed. But the determined hardihood of veteran pioneers quails not before obstacles which a swinging axe and patient grit can surmount, and our bold homeseeker and his assistant toiled steadily forward, sometimes enabled to drive their team for a long distance through open glades and natural lanes, and then halting to cut their way through dense, apparently interminable forests. 
Several days were employed in accomplishing the distance of 18 miles. Mr. Lincoln was heard to say, afterward, that the hardest experience of his hard, rude life was his journey from Thompson's Ferry to Spencer County, Indiana. Having determined the site of his new home, the pioneer returned to Kentucky on foot, leaving his goods under the care of one of his new neighbors in Indiana. Preparations to remove his family were soon completed, and the emigrants set forth with three horses, Mrs. Lincoln and her daughter mounted on one, little Abe on another, and the head of the family on the third. A wearisome journey of seven days, through a region almost wholly uninhabited, making a couch of the earth and a roof of the sky by night, at length brought them to their future residence. An axe was placed in the hands of the boy, probably for the first time. A neighbor also assisted, and, in a few days, a clearing for the site of the cabin was effected. Soon, under the experienced supervision of Mr. Lincoln, a comfortable abode, about 18 feet square, was reared for the future homestead. It was composed of logs, which were fastened together in the usual way, by notches, and the crevices between them chinked with billets of wood and mud. A bed, a table, and four stools were then made of slabs, and the rude habitation was ready to receive its occupants. The cabin had only one room. Though the slabs laid across through the joints overhead formed a sort of loft between them and the roof. This loft was allotted to Abe for a bedroom, and was reached from below by means of a ladder. Here he reposed nightly for years, contently and soundly, we have no doubt. What better fare had he known than this? We question if a sweeter sleep or balmier repose than the future President of the United States enjoyed, after his long days of wood-chopping, was ever attained by the most pampered pet of princely luxury. Although diligently employed during the ensuing winter, besides giving attention to the prosecution of his simple studies, he also was constrained to practice with the rifle, and became quite a proficient in the use of that important element of woodcraft. One day, toward the close of his eighth year, while his father happened to be absent, a flock of wild turkeys approached the cabin, and Abraham, standing inside, took aim with his rifle through a crevice of the log house and succeeded in killing one of the fowls. This was his first shot at a living game, and, according to his own account, he has never since pulled a trigger on larger. But we can imagine, and participate in, the pride with which he exhibited his trophy to his delighted parents. The skill of the rifleman of that day was very great. The driving of a sixpenny nail at a hundred yards, or the snuffing of a candle by night at fifty, were no uncommon feats of marksmanship. Hence it was considered important that boys should early learn to shoot with accuracy, 
and a lad with a natural tact for the rifle was looked upon as a rising genius by the neighboring settlers. Skill with the firearm was, further, to be valued and desired, inasmuch as, in addition to procuring game for the larder, furs were in great demand, and many animals were esteemed on this account. This early culture in the use of the rifle assisted much in the development of the boy's physical vigor. Manly strength and great power of endurance have ever since distinguished him. Doubtless much of the courage, promptness, and decision, for which his whole life has been eminent, came from the school of which the rifle was master. The hardships and dangers of a hunter's life are well calculated to call forth and give tangibility to the sterner virtues. In the autumn of 1818, Abraham had the misfortune to lose his excellent mother. That she was a truly noble woman, the son's afterlife attested. From her came his deep and abiding reverence for holy things his profound trust in providence, and faith in the triumph of truth. From her he learned the gentleness and amiability of temper which, in the lofty station of chief magistrate, he displayed so strikingly during years of most appalling responsibility. From her he received the spirit of playfulness and the desire to see others happy which afterward formed so prominent a trait in his character. Though uneducated in books, she was wise in the wisdom of experience and truth, and was to her son a good mother indeed. He never ceased to mourn her loss, and never mentioned her name in after years, but with the deepest reverence. One year after the death of his mother, his father espoused Mrs. Sally Johnston, a widow, with three children of her first marriage. At the time of her second marriage, she was residing at Elizabethtown, Kentucky. She proved a good mother to Abraham and is still residing in Coles County, Illinois. He soon conceived a filial attachment for her, which ever afterward continued. Abraham achieved the art of reading before his own mother's death, and it may well be presumed that he did not permit this key to knowledge to become rusty in his keeping. He was an inveterate bookworm, as far as materials could be procured, from the moment of his mastery of the rudiments, and soon became the subject of remark among the neighboring settlers for his thoughtful ways and mental industry. About the time of his father's second marriage, a person by the name of Crawford, who came into the vicinage, was induced to open a school. It being understood that he was familiar at least with reading, writing, and the rudimentary rules of arithmetic. Our young pioneer, in the pursuit of learning, was sent to this school when about 12 or 13 years old. Previous to this, he had learned to write, being assisted therein by a young man of the neighborhood, 
and chiefly practicing out of doors with a piece of chalk or a charred stick. In his new school, he greatly improved himself in the first two branches named, and was soon master of his teacher's store of arithmetic. His school dress, during the prosecution of these higher branches, consisted of buckskin clothes and a raccoon skin cap. He attended two other schools successively, kept by one Sweeney and Azel W. Dorsey, but his circumstances were such as to render his amount of regular schooling exceedingly limited. Mr. Lincoln afterward remarked that he did not think the aggregate of his schooling amounted to one year. He never attended a college or academy as a student, and never, indeed, even saw the inside of a college or academy till after he had won his law license. What he possessed in the way of an Education, as generally understood, he obtained by dint of hard, unaided study. Probably the most interesting period in the biography of a great man, be he a thinker, statesman, or soldier, is this early stage of life, when the desire for honor is rather a dreamlike or enthusiastic hope than the hungry longing of succeeding years when our little taste of the Pyrian spring has grown into a thirst which would drink deeply and forever. For at this period, at this charming danger of the first draft, we seem to behold the incentives, the germs, the incipient dawn, as it were, of those after-deeds which shed luster upon the world and upon the doer's name. We feel curious to know what were his first loves in the way of books, human characters, and the visible objects of the natural universe. For in these we can look back upon our own experiences, and find similitude or antithesis, or place them alongside the similar characteristics of others of the world's great men with whose histories we are familiar. Our subject took uncommon pride in his early studies, and his praiseworthy diligence soon won him the esteem of his masters. While his attainments, limited as they then were, enabled him to act as a scribe for the more untutored settlers, whenever they had letters to be written. He was quicker to learn than most boys in his circumstances would have been, and was gifted with, and aided by, a very retentive memory. Of course, books were his great delight, and the procuring of a sufficient number of them to employ his mind one of his principal anxieties. His father did much to aid him in his difficult pursuit, and whenever he heard of any particular volume which he thought desirable, or for which Abraham asked, he always endeavored to obtain it for the use of his son. In this way, says Mr. Raymond, he became acquainted with Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Aesop's Fables, A Life of Henry Clay, and Weems' Life of Washington. Footnote 1. 
May we not presume this selection to be an indication of that love of anecdote which has made our chief magistrate so distinguished as a relator of pithy stories. End of footnote 1. Footnote 2. This fact may be significant when we reflect that Mr. Lincoln always remained an admirer of Mr. Clay, and that he was afterward a clay wig. End of footnote 2. The Hatchet Story of Washington, which has done more to make boys truthful than a hundred solemn exhortations, made a strong impression upon Abraham, and was one of those unseen, gentle influences which helped to form his character for integrity and honesty. Its effect may be traced in the following story, which bids fair to become as never-failing an accompaniment to a life of Lincoln as the hatchet case to that of Washington. Quote, Mr. Crawford had lent him a copy of Ramsey's Life of Washington. During a severe storm, Abraham improved his leisure by reading this book. One night he laid it down carefully, as he thought, and the next morning he found it soaked through with water. The wind had changed, and the rain had beaten in through a crack in the logs, and the book was ruined. How could he face the owner under such circumstances? He had no money to offer as a return, but he took the book, went directly to Mr. Crawford, showed him the irreparable injury, and frankly and honestly offered to work for him until he should be satisfied. Mr. Crawford accepted the offer, and gave Abraham the book for his own, in return for three days' steady labor in pulling fodder. His manliness and straightforwardness won the esteem of the Crawfords, and, indeed, of all the neighborhood. End of quote. Another significant trait of his character is said to have manifested itself while he still was at school. Among his schoolfellows, he was invariably a peacemaker. He adjusted their misunderstandings, mediated in cases of extreme difficulty, with remonstrance and soothing kindness, and, in more than one instance, is said to have thrown himself between infuriated urchins and restored harmony at the risk of personal injury to himself. Certain it is he ever afterward retained this characteristic in an eminent degree. Not the least memorable instance was his long, patient, and earnest efforts for conciliation at the outbreak of the Great Southern Rebellion. The immortal page of history will bear witness that he went as far to preserve the peace and stay the madness of the slave propagandists as he dared to go, considering his oath to support and maintain the Constitution and to enforce the laws. But when he had mastered the rule of three, the school days of Abraham Lincoln were over, and even ruder days of physical toil than he had as yet experienced were in store for him. Note. In a communication to the New York Independent, 
Reverend J.P. Gulliverd detailed some interesting circumstances connected with Mr. Lincoln's education and early experiences, which he gleaned from the chief magistrate during a lengthy personal interview. We must be permitted to extract from the communication the following, as throwing more light upon the president's peculiar mental constitution than anything that has yet been given by his biographers. I want very much to know, Mr. Lincoln, how you got this unusual power of putting things. It must have been a matter of education. No man has it by nature alone. What has your education been? Well, as to education, the newspapers are correct. I never went to school more than 12 months in my life. But, as you say, this must be a product of culture in some form. I have been putting the question you ask me to myself while you have been talking. I can say this, that among my earliest recollections, I remember how, when a mere child, I used to get irritated when anyone talked to me in a way I could not understand. I don't think I ever got angry at anything else in my life. But that always disturbed my temper, and has ever since. I can remember going to my little bedroom, after hearing the neighbors talk, of an evening, with my father, and spending no small part of the night walking up and down, and trying to make out what was the exact meaning of some of their, to me, dark sayings. I could not sleep, though I often tried to, when I got on such a hunt after an idea, until I had caught it. And when I thought I had got it, I was not satisfied until I had repeated it over and over, until I had put it in language plain enough, as I thought, for any boy I knew to comprehend. This was a kind of passion with me, and it has since stuck by me, for I am never easy now, when I am handling a thought, till I have bounded it north and bounded it south, and bounded it east and bounded it west. Perhaps that accounts for the characteristic you observe in my speeches, though I never put the two things together before. Mr. Lincoln, I thank you for this. It is the most splendid educational fact I ever happened upon. This is genius with all its impulsive, inspiring, dominating power over the mind of its possessor, developed by education into talent, with its uniformity, its permanence, and its disciplined strength, always ready, always available, never capricious, the highest possession of the human intellect. But let me ask, did you not have a law education? How did you prepare for your profession? Oh yes, I read law, as the phrase is. That is, I became a lawyer's clerk in Springfield, and copied tedious documents, and picked up what I could of law in the intervals of other work. But your question reminds me of a bit of education I had, which I am bound in honesty to mention. In the course of my law reading, I constantly came upon the word demonstrate. I thought, at first, that I understood its meaning, but soon became satisfied that I did not. 
I said to myself, what do I do when I demonstrate more than when I reason or prove? How does demonstration differ from any other proof? I consulted Webster's Dictionary. That told of certain proof, proof beyond the possibility of doubt. But I could form no idea what sort of proof that was. I thought a great many things were proved beyond a possibility of doubt, without recourse to any such extraordinary process of reasoning as I understood demonstration to be. I consulted all the dictionaries and books of reference I could find, but with no better results. You might as well have defined blue to a blind man. At last I said, Lincoln, you can never make a lawyer if you do not understand what demonstrate means. And I left my situation in Springfield, went home to my father's house, and stayed there till I could give any propositions in the six books of Euclid at sight. I then found out what demonstrate means, and went back to my law studies. I could not refrain from saying, in my admiration of such a development of character and genius combined, Mr. Lincoln, your success is no longer a marvel. It is the legitimate result of adequate causes. You deserve it all, and a great deal more. If you will permit me, I would like to use this fact publicly. It will be most valuable in inciting our young men to that patient classical and mathematical culture which most minds absolutely require. No man can talk well unless he is able, first of all, to define to himself what he is talking about. Euclid, well studied, would free the world of half its calamities by banishing half of the nonsense which now deludes and curses it. I have often thought that Euclid would be one of the best books to put on a catalogue of the Tract Society. If they could only get people to read it, it would be a means of grace. I think so, he said laughing. I vote for Euclid. End of section 1